Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hello, listeners. This is Peter Hunt. On 17 September this year, McCabe Kerwood held a masterclass regarding various issues arising under the Motor Accident Injuries Act. We're very fortunate to have on the panel Belinda Cassidy, currently a special counsel at Stax and also a CARS assessor in the old scheme and a DRS assessor in the new scheme. And of course, Belinda was the PCA for many years under MACA. We also had Andrew Stone, SC, who is known to everybody in the CTP world. And the third panellist was yours truly. We're very fortunate to have a great turnout of clients attend the seminar despite the incredibly inclement weather outside. And we're very grateful and thankful, both grateful and thankful, for those who attended. At the masterclass, we discussed a number of Maya issues, but one of the burning questions was the Supreme Court matter of AAI and Singh, which by pure coincidence had been argued the previous Friday. And of course, Andrew Stone SE was the barrister for the injured person in those proceedings. So I'm about to pause my own commentary and play you the full discussion led by Mr. Stone regarding the matter of Singh. He explains the facts, the issues and the opposing arguments in the proceedings. And once we've heard those remarks, I will then discuss the outcome, which has now been handed down by Justice Fagan. So here is Andrew Stone to discuss the background of the decision in Singh. A question for Andrew. And in last time you appeared in the Supreme Court in the matter of Singh and AI Limited, involving a few people in the room. The Supreme Court was asked to consider the impact of a no-fault scheme in the arena of statutory benefits. Can you give a rundown of the issues and the like implications once judgment is received? Yeah, and on the basis that people at back would like to see, because I'm going to be talking for a couple of minutes, I might actually stand up and do this. Let me first of all explain what happened to Mr Singh and then go back and give you a little history and background to explain how we've got to where we've got to. Mr Singh was driving a semi-trailer, a prime mover with a semi-trailer attached. There was a container packed onto the semi-trailer. He goes around a corner, the vehicle tips over. There's no other vehicle involved and it was agreed that Mr Singh had done nothing wrong. His driving did not contribute to it, and it was further ultimately agreed that it had been the misloading of the container internal to the container that had caused it to tip over. And in order to prevent teams to slash trucky fraud, it wasn't as if Mr Singh could have got into the container. He gets given a locked container, and he's not allowed to go into it. So there was nothing he could have done to inspect or check inside the container. So Mr Singh's done nothing wrong. Somebody else has done something wrong, and it wasn't his employer, it wasn't the truck owner, it was a third party who'd been responsible for loading the container. Does everyone understand the basic facts? Let me take a step back to 2006. Leading into 2006, we had two categories of people that we looked at under the New South Wales Motor Accident Scheme. We had people who were injured through the fault of somebody else, and we called them plaintiffs. And we had people who caused other people's injuries, and we called them defendants. So they were the two categories we had. You were hurt by somebody else, you got damages, you caused somebody else to be hurt, you got to be the defendant in proceedings, and that was it. 
Then in 2006, we created two more categories. Post-Sophie Delizio, and those of you who don't know, go away and look up that particular piece of history. You know, driver had an epileptic seizure, ran off the road into the Fairlight Nursery and ended up parked on top of Sophie Delizio, causing her horrendous injuries. And the question that arose was that, you know, there was arguably nothing negligent on the part of the driver. And if there's nothing negligent on the part of the driver, then Sophie doesn't fit into either of our two existing categories. She obviously done nothing wrong, but equally she couldn't prove someone else had done something wrong to injure her. And that's when we invented um, blameless accidents, what went into Section 7A of the Motor Accidents Compensation Act. And again, that got broken into two parts. 7A said, if you've been injured and there's nobody at fault, you can have a blameless accident. But 7E cleaved it and said, unless you're the driver of the vehicle that's caused the injury. So we had that cleaving between those two categories. So we've now got four categories of people within the scheme. Everyone still with me? Jump forward to the new scheme. Nothing has changed in relation to those four divisions for the purposes of damages claims. But the question is, what do we do with those four groupings when we get to statutory benefits? Because statutory benefits is not a third-party scheme. You don't need to identify anybody else at fault to qualify for statutory benefits. Section 3.1 says if you're in a motor accident, you get statutory benefits, full stop. And you get it irrespective of no, you know, no matter how damn stupid you've been. There's a couple of exclusions. If you've got workers' comp rights, go see workers' comp. If it's a criminal offence, go away entirely. But otherwise, everybody else comes into the statutory benefits regime. Then at six months, we cut people off. We cut off people with minor injury and we cut off people who are wholly or mostly at fault. Now, can everyone pick what's missing from that from our earlier analysis? It's first party rather than third party. So nowhere in that is the requirement to prove that anybody else is at fault. So in Mr. Singh's accident, where there is nobody else at fault, in the motor accident sense, he might have some rights as against the container packers, but there's nobody else in a motor accident act sense responsible. Does Mr. Singh stay on statutory benefits or not? My argument on behalf of Mr. Singh was, well, there's nothing here that takes away his rights. He has a motor accident under 3.1. He's not wholly or mostly at fault. He stays on statutory benefits. The insurer ran two arguments as to why you take statutory benefits away. The first was an argument where they said 3.2 deems him to be at fault and takes them away because 3.2 is the arrangement that says who pays for a statutory benefits. And the reason you have to have a who pays clause is that we've got a fault-based policy written into the Act. And so to create no-fault benefits, you've got to, in effect, impose a fault on somebody to make them pay. The question came up during the course of the case, why didn't we just amend the statutory policy to say you're going to pay for fault-based claims plus whatever other bells and whistles we build into the Act? And there's a very good reason we can't do that, is that it would work beautifully for New South Wales, but it would leave us in a real pickle when it came to interstate vehicles causing accidents in New South Wales, because we can't amend the Queensland statutory policy. And if we want you know, a Queensland driver to pay up if they park on top of Sophie Delizio, then we need to deem them because we can't change their policy. Am I making sense to everybody? That's why you've got to do this in this convoluted way of changing the statutory, of, of imposing burdens on the statutory policy. So we had the argument in saying, first of all, 3.2 says we've got to deem an insurer liable to pay. And the argument that was being run on the insurer's behalf in that case was because that was deeming that insurer to be liable to pay on the basis of fault of Mr Singh. That's a deeming of Singh, a fault on Mr Singh's part, and that can be used to take his statutory benefits away. I've got to say, I, you know, my read on the case was I don't think the judge was wild about that argument because the language of 3.2 is in terms of which insurer pays, not which is an individual we pin blame upon. So I'm 
moderately confident that that argument's not going to work. So at that point, we say our argument was uh, part three self-contained. Mr. Sting stays on statutory benefits. The insurer's second limb was to get into part five, which is where the blameless accident or what's now called no-fault accidents are contained. Can part five be used to take it away? Because in part five, there's again, if you're going to pay Sophie Delizio, you've got to deem somebody liable to pay. And so there's a deeming provision in part five. And the argument was to use that. Now, that raised a much broader question, um, because for those of you who are familiar, at least with the old 7A, nothing in a blameless accident applies if there's some other party at fault. So we had lots of debate about whether there's some other party at fault, because in this case, there was another party at fault. And there was debate about the broad and narrow definition of any other person at fault that is a whole other debate in itself and I won't take you to now. But then the question is, can you get to 5.2 and find any other person at fault? Because 5.2 says if it's a single vehicle accident, we deem the driver of that vehicle to be at fault. And is that enough to carry back into 3.11 and 3.28 to deem Mr Singh to be at fault and take away his statutory benefits? The argument that I think ran in Mr Singh's favour on that was I I was able to say, well, if you're going to look at what's now 3.2 subsection 1 to deem Mr Singh at fault, you've got to look at 3.2 subsection 2. Now, Mr Singh didn't hurt anybody else. It was a single vehicle accident. But let's imagine in going around the corner, Mr Singh's vehicle had toppled onto another vehicle, injuring the driver of that vehicle. Now, that driver's clearly not at fault. Mr Singh fell on him. Mr Singh's still not at fault. So does that mean you've got to deem both the driver of the vehicle alongside and Mr Singh to both be at fault, are they both deemed at fault and thus they're both excluded from getting statutory benefits at 26 weeks? And I think that was a pretty unappealing proposition to the judge to take away the driver sitting next to Mr Singh and his statutory benefits, which is what would happen if you went into 5.2. And I think where the judge is going to land is that the phrase statutory benefits actually doesn't need to be anywhere in five point, in section in part five. Statutory benefits is self-contained within part three. No one ever needs to aver a blameless accident to get to statutory benefits. You do to get to damages, but you don't for statutory benefits because 3.1 gives you statutory benefits the minute you're in a motor accident. So in fact, part of my argument was you could rip up part five in its entirety and you'd still have exactly the same statutory benefits regime paying Mr Singh. Andrew, let's interject. But the word statutory benefits doesn't actually appear in It it appears six times there. So how do you reconcile that? You don't. He's going to say, this is a complete mess. What is it doing there? And in fact, the parliament... Sarah went back in and ripped it out of one section where they were concerned about what was happening in the first six months, but nobody looked up and looked at all the rest of it. Well, actually they did, but there's a problem. It was fixed with a, and this is where 18 and a half years in the public service pays (laughs) off, but there are rules about what you can fix Mm. with little miscellaneous statutory provision tidy-ups, and you can, you know, you can fix up a minimum of three words in one place sort of thing, and um, you couldn't do... Uh, the same requires, two words. Otherwise, in, it requires yeah. a regulatory impact statement or exactly, more. Exactly, and you know, um, and it can't just go yeah. sweeping through at midnight the, on a yeah. good day. The, the, the judge accepts that the entire statutory benefits, sorry, the entire blameless accident provisions are a complete mess, that they're internally inconsistent. I suspect he will duck the difficult, what does any other person at fault mean, by simply saying, I can deal with Mr Singh in part three, I never need to look at part five. And in particular, because part five ends with a clause none of us have ever looked at saying nothing in this part affects your rights under any other part. What do you do with that? Can you then use part five to affect rights under part three or can't you? So my suspicion is he'll say I can put part five entirely aside. I can avoid answering the question for the Court of Appeal on what does any other person say. And I can leave Mr Singh on his statutory benefits under part three without and not apply any deeming.
But there's been arguments put on behalf of the insurer that he can be deemed at fault under 3.2 to take away his statutory benefits or deemed at fault under part 5.2. Adding in one last part, and this is where I think it really will help push it in my favour, um, or at least Mr Singh's favour, is not only are we talking about the driver Mr Singh topples over on top of, but I took the judge to partaking in some Wallahan-like delving into history. On the 23rd of October 2004 was the worst motor vehicle accident in this state's history, I think, in terms of just vehicles involved. It was a 35-car pile-up on the Mooney Mooney Bridge. Um, thankfully, only one person killed. Um, I say thankfully, of course, tragically one person killed, but I live through Kempsey and 35 people killed. You know, so one person killed, but 35 cars involved. Truck lost its brakes going down the Mooney Mooney Bridge. Um, now, if we assume that that is not the fault of the driver, they didn't know the brakes were going to go, let's give the benefit of the doubt and even assume that in that hypothetical case, it's not the fault of the owner. Let's assume it's the fault of either the manufacturer of the vehicle or a repairer. I think for the insurer's argument to be correct, that means you would have to find all 35 drivers involved in that accident are deemed to be at fault and cut off statutory benefits at six months, whereas it's only the passengers who would then get benefits beyond that date. And I think when you put it like that, that becomes an unacceptable statutory construction answer. So, but I don't see how under five, if you get to 5.22 and say it applies, I don't see how you can apply 5.21 and 5.22 and say, this is a no fault accident. We're not going to deem the entirety of every driver involved at fault. So I think that will end up being a relatively persuasive argument. You now know all a vast deal more about this than you actually wanted to. So I apologise for that. But I was actually asked the question. I think I've at least answered it, but I'm happy to take further questions on it. No, that's more than enough. Sorry. <laughs> Complex. Suffice to say, the judge, I, I thought, did a fantastic job of actually getting across those arguments by the end of a day of argument on it. Um, Can we but, do that? It's, it's terribly drafted. Oh, that's uh, the origin of this whole problem. We pleaded with people going through part five. Can we actually just answer some questions about this section while we're looking at it? Can we work out what any other person at fault means? Yeah. Because you've got this really big dilemma of, you know, at the moment, if you're riding your motorcycle, if we accept there's a broad definition and any other person genuinely means any other person anywhere, anytime, did the Parliament intend to look after Sophie Delizio, but not if six months earlier some GP had negligently let that driver maintain his driver's licence because there you have some other person at fault? Was it genuinely the Parliament's intent to say, we will provide you with damages compensation if, a can if you're a pillion passenger and a kangaroo comes out into the side of the motorbike? So if you're familiar with Milenowitz, let's give Mr Milenowitz a pillion passenger, at least Mr Milenowitz's pillion passenger under old act and new act gets a damages claim because it's a blameless accident as far as he's concerned. Do we pay in those circumstances for a blameless accident involving a kangaroo, but we don't pay if instead it's a horse that comes out into the side of the motorcycle and there's a farmer who allowed the horse to escape even though that farmer's impecunious and uninsured? There are policy choices here of where we, we go back to Syria and say, who do you want to pay and who don't you want to pay? You know, help us draw a line and we will then help you draft to say, yep, this is our intent. We intend to cover this. We don't intend to cover that. And we begged and pleaded, will you look at blameless accidents and help us sort this out? And instead they barreled it through. Somebody's tacked the word and statutory benefits, peppered it throughout the section everywhere the word damages appears. And I think it's entirely unnecessary. I think the judge will find that there are six words you know, six phrases repeated through part five that actually have no work to do whatsoever. And there you get into two competing arguments about statutory construction. One rule of statutory construction is that 
Parliament lovingly labour over these things, giving careful attention to every word, and therefore we must do the same, and we must give meaning and purpose to every word. That's one school of statutory construction. The other broadest school is you've got to make the Act work. And you can, as they say, apply the judicial plasticine to try and make things, you know, to make black white if it's the only way you can make it make sense. I think this judge will lean towards the latter approach rather than the former. So I think that's why he will just say, look, I know they've mentioned state benefits lots of times in part five. I can ignore it. But he may not. He may say, no, no, I'm going to give this full meaning and Mr Singh can miss out. What he'll then decide about the hypothetical driver Mr Singh toppled onto, um, I don't know. Are you at least all comfortable as to why the passengers in Mr Singh's vehicle, if there were any, would get stat benefits? Because, again, they can't prove anyone has done anything wrong. There's no, they've got no third-party entitlements in the CTP scheme. They've purely got statutory benefits for life, um, is my view. So that was Andrew Stone's discussion of the background in Singh. I hope you enjoyed his account of the background facts, the issues which arose, and the opposing arguments by each party. So Justice Hagan handed down his decision in Singh on 27 September 2019. My esteemed colleague and friend, Andrew Gorman, has already published a case note on the decision, which you can, you can find on the McCabe Kerwood website. And there will also be a link below this podcast episode for easy access. But essentially, his honour accepted all the arguments put by Andrew Stone SC on behalf of Mr Singh. Firstly, it's worth noting that Part 5 of Maya, according to His Honour, requires significant amendment. There are internal inconsistencies and it's hard to see how some of the provisions fit together. His Honour also found that Part 5, in any event, has no role to really play in the stat benefits arena because... There's no function for no-fault accidents in a state benefits claim. To understand more about that, I refer you to, An- to Andrew Gorman's case note. Most importantly, perhaps, his honour found that section 3.2, subsection 5, does not operate to deem the driver of a vehicle in a so-called no-fault accident to be at fault. The purpose of section 3.2 Subsection 5, his honour found, was to deem the insurer liable to make payments or statutory benefits as opposed to deeming the conduct of the driver or the owner fault in the use or operation of the vehicle. So the outcome was that Mr Singh was entitled to ongoing stat benefits beyond 26 weeks because he was neither actually at fault nor was he deemed at fault, and therefore he was not mostly at fault. So what are the practical implications? Well, I've gone through a number of scenarios in my head, and I thought I'd help you with my thinking as follows. Firstly, let's start with single vehicle accidents. So let's take, to begin with, a single vehicle accident where there's no fault by the driver. So assume, for example, that the driver was stung by a bee, loses control of his vehicle and has an accident. In that scenario, there is no actual fault by the driver and following the decision in Singh, there is no deemed fault either. And the outcome is he can. the driver is therefore not mostly at fault. His benefits will continue beyond 26 weeks. Now consider a case involving a single vehicle accident where the driver is actually at fault. For example, the driver may have been speeding, 
misjudges a bend and hits a tree. In that case, there is actual fault by the driver. And in the absence of anybody else being at fault, that driver is mostly at fault and their stat benefits cease at 26 weeks. So we've dealt with single vehicle accidents. Let's move on to multi-vehicle accidents. And again, let's start with a no-fault scenario. So assume that a driver is driving along and experiences an unexpected mechanical failure. In that scenario, there is no actual fault by the driver because the mechanical failure was unexpected and they're not deemed to be at fault. So it follows they cannot be mostly at fault. So the driver which causes the multi-vehicle accident is entitled to their stat benefits beyond 26 weeks. And of course, anybody else injured in the accident is also entitled to stat benefits beyond 26 weeks because they were not mostly at fault. Staying with multi-vehicle accidents, let's move on to a scenario where there's actual fault by the driver. Assume, for example, the driver proceeds through a red light and hits another vehicle. In that scenario, the driver is actually at fault and probably mostly at fault. So that driver's payments cease at 26 weeks. And of course, any other person injured in the accident is also entitled to stat benefits beyond the 26-week period. Now let's move on to pedestrians. And let's start with a no-fault scenario. So imagine a situation similar to the classic case of Derek and Chung, but an adult rather than a child. So an adult runs onto the road without warning into the path of the insured vehicle. And let's assume the driver is doing nothing wrong. So they're driving within the speed limit. They're keeping a proper lookout. They react appropriately to the presence of the pedestrian. In that case, there's no fault by the driver and there's actual fault by the pedestrian. So the pedestrian is mostly at fault. And in my view, their payments cease at the 26-week mark. Now let's look at a case where the driver is at fault. So imagine the driver runs down a pedestrian who's lawfully crossing the road on a zebra crossing. In that scenario, there's no fault by the pedestrian. So the pedestrian's payments continue beyond 26 weeks. Now for the two difficult scenarios. Firstly, assume mixed fault. So for example, the driver might be speeding and the pedestrian's running across the road. Neither is looking out for the other. In that case, the pedestrian is at least partially at fault and there's probably a legal argument to be had over whether they're over 61% or not. So whether their payments continue beyond 26 weeks is uncertain. Reasonable minds may differ over whether the, the pedestrian is mostly at fault or not. Now imagine a case where there's no fault by either the pedestrian or the driver. I know that's difficult to imagine, but here's a scenario for your consideration. Imagine there's a swarm of bees one bee stings the pedestrian who starts swearing and waving the bees away and in doing so stumbles onto the road. Another bee stings the driver who lifts his foot from the accelerator, hits the brake but loses control of the vehicle and hits the pedestrian. So arguably there's no fault by either party because their want of care, so to speak, is caused by the sudden bee sting. Can the pedestrian claim stat benefits at all? And if so, do they continue beyond 26 weeks? This is where the mindset change is required. 
the pedestrian does not need to find someone at fault in order to claim stat benefits. All they need to show is that they were injured in a motor accident in New South Wales. So the pedestrian certainly is entitled to stat benefits for the first 26 weeks. And because they're not actually at fault and following Singh, they're not deemed to be at fault, the pedestrian can also claim, in my view, stat benefits beyond 26 weeks. Now, everything I said is, is my opinion based upon the legislation and the judgment in Singh. I've not discussed this with Andrew Stone, for example, and his view may differ to mine. But that's my assessment of the impact of Singh on the stat benefits regime. So I hope that's helpful. Please let me know if you have any questions. If you think I'm wrong, if there's any dissenting voices, I'd love to hear from you as well. This is a fertile ground and we're all learning from this experience. As I said, we conducted a masterclass at McCabe Kerwood on 17 September. There are other topics discussed, including issues with regard to the mental harm provisions and section 3.39, and also a discussion regarding the relevant insurer. And we'll be publishing podcast episodes in coming weeks, allowing you to hear the um, discussion on the day together with our own commentary about that discussion. So until then, thank you for listening and I wish you all the best. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at or visit our website to see McCabe Kerwood's full team of specialists.